0: Hello, and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. When there's trouble on the home front, the best thing a Prime Minister can often do is to head overseas, and that's exactly what Rishi Sunak's been doing. The Prime Minister jetted to the G20 in India for some intense global diplomacy. So how significant are these trips, and what did Sunak get out of this one? We'll talk to someone who is on the plane with the PM. Is there a spy in our midst? The big story in Westminster is Parliament's security, or lack of it. We'll take a closer look at a story that's caused shock in SW1. And then we'll turn to a policy question that will play a big part in the next election. The government's promise to level up the country. Labour has now said it would deliver real-life levelling up. But is the centre of government actually capable of reducing regional inequality? A new IFG report has the answers, and we'll speak to its author. I'm joined throughout by my IFG colleague, Alex Thomas, who leads our work on the civil service and policymaking. Hi, Alex. Hi, Hannah. And I'm delighted that John Stevens, political editor at the Daily Mirror, is with us again. Hi, John. How was your summer?
1: Hi, Hannah. Yeah, it was lovely. Thank you. It was good.
0: I'm afraid I've returned to Westminster and caught some kind of lurgy. So apologies to everyone for my croaky voice throughout this.
1: Let's start with Rishi Sunak's trip to India.
0: John, you were on the plane with the PM. What's that actually like?
1: Yeah, it was good. Those trips are always quite interesting. They are usually quite busy, quite a mixture of domestic and foreign stories because for journalists like me who don't work for friendly publications or publications which are classed as friendly you don't get that much face time with the prime minister apart from on those trips that is your opportunity when you're on the plane somewhere you do a huddle that is basically your one chance to get a question to the prime minister since i've worked at the mirror i don't think i've had any questions promised in any other formats apart from in one of those plane huddles so you get this strange mixture of questions about trade deals with india about biden about china and then the questions about domestic issues so things like the pensions triple lock so yeah you get an odd mishmash of stories on those sorts of trips
0: that's really interesting. So part of the job for you is to really prioritise those things that you're not going to get a chance to ask otherwise.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. And for us, I mean, you you look at the stories that we've got from all those trips in the last few months, it's always something along the lines, something we're very interested in. So we've had a campaign over the summer on ticket offices. Obviously, you've heard government ministers like Mark Harper questioned about it, but it's the first time I think we've really heard from Rishi Sunak on what he thinks about it and and get some words from him.
0: And Alex, how are officials preparing for this sort of trip? Presumably they're much more focused on the foreign policy outcomes they're trying to achieve.
2: Yes, I'll sort of come on to that in a second. But although there is an interesting parallel with what John was saying about access to the Prime Minister, on the micro detail of these trips, there is often a bit of a scramble for, you know, who gets to be on the plane, who's going to go with the PM, particularly for the sort of high profile, more glamorous trips, going to the, the US to meet the President or, or or whatever. So so access matters to the uh, officials as well in the the court around the Prime Minister. But on the sort of substance of policy and, and foreign affairs, I think there's a, there's a difference between the G7, G20 trips that this was and bilateral visits, and particularly for the G7, G20, there's this quite elaborate process in the run-up to the summit where what are called the Sherpas, slightly anachronistic term, they're the senior government officials who are in each country tasked with setting the groundwork for the summit, kind of agreeing on the agendas and trying to find the space for agreement. So there's a whole big process in the run-up to that and it's considered a fairly prestigious job within the civil service to be one of those Sherpas. So they will have been for months and months beforehand, working out where there was space for an agreement, what the points of contention might um, be. And that all comes together at the summit with a communique. I mean, the the thing that caught the headlines on this one was the language around Ukraine and a perceived softening of that language. So I imagine the UK Sherpa will have been working very hard to get strong language as possible, while others will have been pushing back on it.
0: Is it your sense that all prime ministers through the course of their premiership begin to sort of prefer in some ways the global stage to all the pressures of domestic politics at home, even if people like John are trying to bring the reality of the domestic on the trip with them?
2: Yes. I mean, I suppose that's the cliche. Like all cliches, it has a fair bit of truth into it, which is when things are tough at home, it's quite nice wandering around the world in a plane and meeting global leaders who might have the same sorts of problems at home, but you can all agree on the the big picture. I do think it depends, it depends a bit on the personality of the Prime Minister as well. You could see that arc with Tony Blair. Gordon Brown had been much more focused on domestic policy. So there is a sense that events you know, with Brown, it was the uh, global financial crisis that sort of f- pushed him onto the uh, world stage where he was considered to have done quite a good job. So it's, there, is, there is an external pressure there drawing Prime Ministers into all of this, uh, as well as that kind of internal sense that it's, it's more glamorous to be on the world stage.
0: And John, what do you think Sunak actually achieved from this trip?
1: So I think that maybe not as much as he's done on other trips. So I was on the G20 trip with him last November, I think, to Bali, which was his first big international summit. And so that was an opportunity to kind of glad hand Joe Biden, get your face in the papers showing you're a world leader. And I think with this one, it was slightly less high profile. I think that he clearly wanted to make some progress on the trade deal with India. He did hold a, quite a short bilateral with Modi. I think in the end it was about 15 or 20 minutes. I think it's probably quite likely we'll see him go back to India maybe the end of October. England are playing India in the Cricket World Cup. You can see possibility he might go out there, watch cricket with Modi and get this trade deal finally signed. But I don't know, I don't think it was a massive game changer. I mean, Rishi Sunak seems to quite enjoy these trips on the world stage. I think, though, as we get closer to the election and there's much more going at home, I think you might see them as a bit of distraction. You might see him being less keen to get out of the country. I mean, we talked about the huddle you do with the PM on the plane on the way there, which is what we've done with all prime ministers. But Rishi Sunak, actually, I mean, I don't think I'm lifting the curtain too much, seems to quite like also coming back to talk to journalists separately totally off the record and it's quite interesting to see him in a slightly different mode so that second conversation when he comes back I mean it's meant to be quite informal but you do basically end up with a load of journalists huddling around him in quite similar way Uh, but that is totally off the record anything he says there is not reported and people seem to respect that because they understand that If that does change, then obviously you're no longer going to have that sort of access. And it's quite interesting to see Rishi soon. He is so much more passionate and interesting when he's in that mode, that when he's in interview mode, he seems to be very good at regurgitating the line. He basically delivers everything in a very similar delivery, even though it's obviously on the record, but it's not being shown on TV or anything. And then when he comes back for that second chat when he's totally off the record... He's much more interesting talking about issues like China. I mean, just before we came back to the UK, he had a meeting with the Chinese Premier. And he's much more interesting on topics like that, defending his stance on how the UK is treating China when he's totally off the record. Rather, when on the record, he just seems to very much stick to the script and regurgitate words from press releases very I mean he's very good at it learning what he's meant to say and then delivering it it's not always the most interesting for journalists and readers
2: it's a bit like Ed Ed Miliband when he sort of left office or um, Arlene Foster or others These suddenly humanises
0: or I was going to say Theresa May
2: or Theresa May yeah exactly
0: I was just watching the Koonsberg documentary last night and you know the, the whole thing about her team focusing during the 2017 election campaign on you know getting her to have the right messages and that debate about whether she should have shown more of herself I wonder whether there's a similar debate around sunak
1: although having gone through having off the record uh, coffees with theresa may i'm <laughs> not it's not always the most not quite the same yeah i mean she never has really seemed to properly switch off and enjoy those at all that um some of those were particularly awkward so yeah i never really felt on the battle buses or anything we kind of really unlocked the real theresa may
0: Alex, switching to another interesting meeting with a foreign leader, it's been reported that Keir Starmer's is heading off to meet with Emmanuel Macron. Is that significant or surprising or should we just see that as par for the course?
2: I mean, it is interesting. I think there are two aspects to it. The significant thing or the interesting thing about it, I think, is how it's been reported and what it shows about the obvious political Context and you know, Labour Party riding high in the polls and lots of expectations about them forming the next government. In sort of diplomatic terms, I don't think this is particularly unusual uh, at all. I mean, Macron and the Elise know know what the protocol is. I think they met some of the candidates before the German election. A colleague was saying Macron actually met Zelensky before the Ukrainian election and before the invasion of of Ukraine had even happened. So I think it's not that unusual. But the the striking thing is that it is being taken as a sign domestically that Starmer's riding high. And I think that's the significant thing about it, really.
0: And the other Labour story, John, this week has been Labour setting out its approach to immigration. And I think Starmer and co in The Hague today talking to people there. How has that landed in your view?
1: Yeah, well, it's interesting that Labour seem to think that they can now engage in this debate on immigration, that there are votes to be won in this area. And I think they realise that they need to set out a plan and show that they would take this issue very seriously. You've heard Keir Starmer talk about bringing bringing order to the border, which seems to be their new snappy catchphrase. And I think that there has been pressure on them over the summer that they realise that the policy they'd set out so far maybe wasn't detailed enough. And as much as you can criticise the government and say things like the barge or a gimmick that aren't working and say, oh, yeah, we'd like to bring down the asylum backlog. You do actually have to show a bit more of your working on how exactly would you go about doing that?
0: Sunak's returned to the UK to find Westminster in shock after news has finally emerged, which he was apparently aware of for much longer, that a parliamentary researcher has been arrested under the official Secrets Act under suspicion of working as a Chinese agent. Now this is an ongoing investigation so there's only so much we can talk about but it's quite some story really isn't it John?
1: Oh it's that incredible and obviously anything to do with spying it has that added news value that it feels like something for a film and people do enjoy stories like this but obviously there is a serious point behind it and you think that obviously there is an awful lot of people with parliamentary passes a lot of people with access to MPs and we know that world in Westminster where you've got those slightly blurred lines that people start turning up at different think tank events and then into party political stuff you can see how it would be quite easy for someone to kind of gently ease their way into the political scene and I think that clearly it will bring a lot of concern to MPs about the vetting process and about how exactly they do pick who ends up working for them. There's an awful lot of parliamentary researchers, and I think that there will probably be a lot of thinking going on in Parliament about, well, obviously, you do have this standing vetting process to get a parliamentary pass, but are there some MPs who are working on slightly more sensitive things, people working on foreign policy, people who are sitting on the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, could they do with some kind of higher level of vetting for people who are working for them and have access to sensitive materials?
0: Yeah, I mean, it seemed to me there was a degree of sort of naivety from some people reacting to the story about what might constitute intelligence from a Chinese point of view, that actually some of the discussions that are being had are of real interest to other countries, even if they don't involve really highly sensitive classified material. Alex, you sound a bit frustrated with the quotes given by some of the MPs after this story broke in a, in a tweet that you put out. Uh, yes, I suppose.
2: Uh, uh, one reaction to this story was that, to get a little bit frustrated, that various public figures and some you know senior private figures sometimes underestimate i think just how much of a target they are and don't take their security seriously enough sort of at all times. And there was something behind some of those quotes that MPs were given, you know, it's outrageous that we weren't told about this. I mean, I think there's a a bit of a naivety there about how much is shareable on this and how far the security services and others are going to inform MPs about what their concerns are. But there's also a naivety about the fact that hostile states, potentially hostile states, will target legislators senior civil servants, ministers. And regardless of whether there's a specific sense of a threat, you just need to be really vigilant about that. You, you do need to treat information that is sensitive securely. And so treating this almost as a kind of one-off, and you asked, you asked whether this was surprising. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm actually a bit surprised more of this hasn't happened already, because we know that spies exist. We know that this sort of stuff happens. I was think, I mean, you alluded to this a bit, Hannah, there are very different kind of grades of material. And I don't think anybody's suggesting here that there's you know, deep national security stuff or even private and sensitive policy discussions that might have been accessed. That would obviously be extremely serious, particularly on the national security side. But of course, foreign governments are interested in who's up, who's down, what the rumours are, what the gossip is. But there's very little way of of preventing them having access to that. It, you know, this is public information. It's almost, it's the kind of sharp end of diplomacy to some extent. So I think there is just, just a bit more kind of realism about how the fact that MPs, civil servants, ministers are targets, and a bit more care about how they go about their business on 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 this kind of stuff.
0: Given all that, do you think there is actually an issue with how parliamentary security, sort of vetting and so on, works, or is it, as you say, just a a need for a bit of a, a broader reality check. Yeah, it's
2: tough with vetting because it's a balance, isn't it, between, I mean, we've criticised in the past, the time it takes to get civil servants vetted. And it's a huge kind of gumming up of the system. It means that civil servants are waiting months and months and months sometimes to, to do their jobs. And if the job isn't particularly sensitive, sometimes that feels like overkill. So like all of these things, this is a, a judgment call and a, and a balance. I mean, there are different tiers of security vetting from a kind of basic counter-terrorism check to make sure there isn't a sense that someone might have a terrorist or other kind of problematic background, all the way up to looking at people's finances and their personal lives to, to make sure there's no grounds for concern. And that feels like a sensible way of doing it. I think generally vetting inside government and inside parliament could do with a bit more resource attached to it. But there's no perfect or right answer on these things, which is why it does come down to people who have access to and are in possession of sensitive information being responsible with it.
0: John, to look at the, the border picture, Labour have attacked Sunak for not having a strategy on China. And there's been some questions raised about what he's done since he knew
1: about this.
0: Is the Prime Minister weak on, on this, do you think? Or, or is this just Labour scoring some quick political points?
1: Well, I think that a lot of the criticism has been coming from his own side. There is this vocal group of Tory MPs, people like Ian Duncan-Smith, who've been very firm and saying that Rishi Sunak's been too soft, that he's been cozying up to China. I think that the counter-argument he would make would be that we don't have that many options when you compare the uk to other g7 allies they all have some sort of relationship with china they haven't cut off all diplomatic relations so i think the argument he would make is that on things like climate change where we very much do want to kind of have a relationship with China and shift them in the right direction and have meaningful negotiations and talks that you do have to have some sort of relationship there. And I think he would say, you know, you look at things like the last few years when we had issues like Huawei and that whole row about 5G. If you actually look at what the UK is doing now, he would say that isn't soft you know they are engaging with them but we aren't doing the things that we were doing a few years ago looking at about getting them involved in our telecom networks
0: and alex you were a civil servant during a period when we were much friendlier under cameron and osborne do you think we were going too far at that point um probably
2: yes a little bit although i would make the same distinction that john made between the diplomacy side of it and the international relations which will wax and wane over time and there's yes it's important to maintain laser focus on UK national interests, But the context of the situation does change and China is a huge global actor and needs to be engaged with on all sorts of issues. I mean, there was a good interview with Alex Younger, who was in the week, who was making the point that you can't just treat this as a binary thing. You have to engage with on climate change very differently as to how you might engage with on technology issues. I do think for a period in UK government, there was an underestimation of some of the kind of hard edge security stuff. So involvement in critical national infrastructure, telecoms, as John was saying, but also power generation and and so on. And I think the government has turned the dial on that to be more cautious. And I think that is right. And so to that extent, the Cameron Osborne period did go a little bit far, I think.
0: Now, it seems unlikely that policies on spies will be at the heart of the next general election campaign, but you can bet that pledges and policies on levelling up will be, because levelling up has been a flagship government policy since the last election, and Labour have now placed real-life levelling up, sounds kind of similar, at the heart of its campaign. But is central government actually equipped to tackle regional inequalities? That's the subject of a new IFG report, and one of its authors, our senior researcher Rebecca McKee, joins us now for her podcast debut. Hi, Rebecca.
3: Hi, Hannah. Thank you for having me.
0: So, it's fair to say, having read your report, I think that successive governments don't have a great track record here, do they?
3: No, that's right. A central government does not have a good record here. Regional inequalities are pervasive, they're deep-rooted and they're sticky problems that require consistent and long-term focus. But as successive governments have tried to tackle the problem, there has been uh, endless changes of ministers. So since 1990, there have been 17 secretaries or ministers of state responsible for regional governments. There's also been changes in policy direction, in institutions, and there's been a lack of clarity on policy aims and a failure to coordinate across departments and work well with devolved and local governments. These are familiar problems for other areas of policymaking, but as previous Institute for Government Research has shown, regional governance, industrial strategy, and adult skills are especially prone to these problems and policy churn. All of these are key policy areas that governments have tried to use to address regional inequality.
0: And how would we know, what would it look like if central government was being successful at, at tackling regional inequality?
3: So in our paper, we've developed six tests that uh, we'd say a government that's serious about tackling oh, regional we love inequality, a test. <laughs> we have six of them for you. That a government that's serious about tackling regional inequality should meet, and we've designed these to directly target the problems that we've outlined. So the first one is priority. So is the prime minister's political will translated into a willingness to prioritise tackling regional inequalities and provide sustained leadership over the policy cycle? And this is the most important one. So we say that without it, even the other five tests, they won't be sufficient, but also this test isn't sufficient in and of itself. The second one is definition. So has the government made the scope and ambition of the agenda clear and unambiguous? The third one is structure. So has the government introduced the right structures to enable cross Whitehall working? So here we mean things like central government task forces that can do the coordination role, things like cabinet committees, implementation committees, The fourth one is collaboration. So does central government understand the role that different governments across the UK need to play in the policy? And has it built effective partnerships to achieve those goals? The fifth one is stability. So has the government set up the right institutions to encourage a long-term focus? So here we mean things like an independent external scrutiny body, which would be a beefed up version of what we currently have with the Leveling Up Advisory Council. And the final one is evidence. So does the government have plans to build up and use a strong evidence base, which is important as well?
0: So taking those six tests together, how would you rate the current performance of Rishi Sunak's government?
3: So unfortunately, I think we'd say he's not passing the first test, which I've said is the most important. The prime ministerial focus. The prime ministerial priority and focus. Which rather underpins the whole thing. It does, exactly. Um, So prioritisation and long-term focus, it has to be set from the top and from the people that we've spoken to. It seems that levelling up isn't the priority in government that it was under Boris Johnson. So the white paper, which is back in February 2022 it was a genuine attempt that we applauded at the time to create a plan of action to succeed where previous iterations of this type of policy had failed. But the Whitehall structures that were identified in that paper that are needed to support the plan, they aren't in place or they're not working effectively. So for example, there was a cabinet committee set up that was chaired by Michael Gove, the Secretary of State for levelling up to drive the agenda through Whitehall. But that was downgraded to an interministerial group that doesn't have the power to make the collective decisions.
0: Alex, do you think that this is a deliberate decision by Rishi Sunak? This, this was a very much a policy identified with Boris Johnson. And so Sunak wants to signal he's got other priorities
2: frankly probably yes i'm not sure quite about the sort of the boris johnson context but i agree with everything rebecca said there but um one of the points that we often make is that governments do need to prioritize and if this isn't a priority fair enough that might be the right or wrong decision but i have some sympathy with the prime minister who also can't given given the nature of where politics is at the moment he can't really come out and say this isn't a priority that's not that's, that's not realistic so he he has to he has to sort of fudge it and if you think that levelling up or whatever you want to call it regional inequality you know should be a priority then i think there's a lot to criticize about the government's approach i think the criticism may sort of actually be that he's not being honest about it and that Politically, he's not able to be honest about it.
0: To come back to you, Rebecca, I mean, in the run into the election, Labour's been clear that this is something they care about. We've got a new shadow levelling up secretary in the form of Angela Rayner, who's not known for being quiet about whatever her political priorities are. So what do you think she ought to be thinking about as she comes into her role about how to do this successfully.
3: Labour's plans are understandably at a much earlier stage in the current governments, but with election on the horizon, this is the time for Labour to get on the front foot. So we think Angela Rayner needs to do more to define Labour's real life levelling up or opportunity for all or however they're going to characterise it their vision, or they risk it being an empty slogan, which is how Labour have dismissed the current government's agenda. So Angela Rayner and Keir Starmer need to be working now to flesh out the detail of their plans. So setting out their long term mission, but also their shorter and medium term targets and how those will be measured. And if they need to do work to try and collect the data for that, they also need to develop their plans for a set of cross government structures to support the agenda if they do get into government and things like where the policy will sit and how that will work.
2: On that definition point, uh, I think it's really interesting and important. So I agree completely with Rebecca that prime ministerial prioritisation and giving some oomph to a policy is the most important thing. But I think it's easy sometimes to neglect the definition point. And I really, one of the things I really like about Rebecca's report is just how much it brings out that the lack of clarity is a fundamental problem for achieving anything on this agenda. And the way the system works internally is if something is signalled as a political priority and it's got a phrase attached to it, and I think this is a danger for Labour and some of their missions as well, so it's not just, doesn't just apply to levelling up, is civil servants, government departments, other ministers will all then try and badge everything as levelling up, and so it becomes everything and nothing. And so as well as the priority point, I think that lack of a clear definition of what this actually tangibly means and the, the very nebulous way that people sometimes talk about this subject is absolutely core to the the, the critique that Rebecca makes in the report.
0: I certainly heard during Boris Johnson's premiership, civil servants say, you know, everything that went into the spending review was something that was definitely going to contribute to, to levelling up. John, to turn to the politics, what did you make of Keir Starmer's decision to switch the levelling up brief from Lisa Nandy to Angela Reina?
1: You could see how it made sense that when going into government, you can more see Angela Rayner in that role rather than being in the cabinet office trying to work across different departments you can see her properly in one department sorting that out and I think that one of the frustrations for Labour's side had been that this is a prime area that department you've got housing you have got levelling up and the suggestion that the government is under delivering and yet They party didn't seem to be really scoring any goals on that. There was some frustration that they weren't really making news on either housing or levelling up. And I think the hope is that with Angela Rayner, who, as you said, there is very strident, is very keen to put her views forward and is someone who does manage to get attention in the media I think they will be hoping to make some progress along those lines. We talk about the definition of levelling up. I think there has been a problem in the government defining what exactly was the promise to voters in 2019 of how they would see their lives being slightly different after five years of a Tory government. And I think for a lot of people, they will, you know, empty shops is a barometer for a lot of people and how their local area is doing. And you will have seen a lot of shops have been emptied on high streets, not because of the government's failing on levelling up, just because that's been the economic picture over the last few years. And I think a lot of those people in those communities that voted Tory for the first time in 2019 will look out at their high streets, see a lot of empty shops, and will think, is our area any better off than it was in 2019? And I think for a lot of those, the answer will be no.
0: So then the question is, can Labour convince them that they've got policies and ideas that will deliver something different?
1: Yeah, and I mean, I don't think any party is suddenly going to be able to magic a magic wand and bring up, those local areas back to being thriving. And we obviously know there is a big debate about how do you get high streets to start performing again? Do you see the transformation where you get less shops and more housing? But obviously a lot of that is a longer term thing rather than something you can turn around in a couple of years.
0: And Alex, if the government does, or Labour does, wins the next election, devolve more powers, to what extent do you think it's fair to to blame the centre? You know, obviously the workers' report looks at the role of the centre if that does or doesn't work, or to what extent is it going to be up to the areas to which those powers and potentially money are being devolved?
2: Yeah, I think there's a there's a distinction, I suppose, between sort of whether it's fair or not and whether it will actually happen, um, because I think you know, the centre will get will get blamed, and it's the old Nye Bevan quote about bedpans clanging in hospitals comes back to the health secretary's desk. So I think even if they do make serious progress on devolution, that accountability question and how are you spending the money? also needs to be answered so for for me it's critical that you and i think it's why you know it's why the, the mayoral model where it works well gives a, a kind of focus to the accountability for who is responsible for changing service provision or whatever but i think there's a political reality to these things racing back to the center and so it will take a pretty Bold Prime Minister and Leveling Up Secretary to really go for this, and I think the debate inside the Labour Party over decentralisation and devolution is going to be absolutely fascinating over the course of the next few years. And I think it's I think it's unresolved. There, there's there's a tension at the heart of that that will be very interesting to see play out.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, there aren't many Chancellors who come in and feel immediately motivated to to give away all their power and money. So we'll see. If uh, Rachel Reeves gets that opportunity, what happens there? John, there were reports today that the government might decide to scrap phase two of HS2. That would obviously free up quite a bit of money, which might then be used for tax cuts. But it doesn't really sound very much like levelling up, does it?
1: No, and I think that... (laughs) the big question on HS2 also is what would Labour do and so far publicly they've been committed to it but I think there are definitely conversations going on amongst senior people in the Labour Party about what exactly do they do on HS2 and obviously on phase one you've seen a lot of money sunk into the project that clearly they're not going to scrap that because that would be ridiculous when you've spent so much money but I think that there will be a question amongst Labour front Benchers about how do you commit to all those other latter phases or are there ways to achieve similar outcomes in a different way?
0: Let's bring it back to you and give you the final word, Rebecca. Are you optimistic that central government can up its game under whichever party's in charge on on levelling up?
3: Yeah, so I think in the short term it's hard to be optimistic. As we've said, delivering this long-term change like this requires this ruthless prioritisation that's measured not only by what the government does, like continued funding for programmes that spending reviews, but also what the government doesn't do. So like dropping or rejecting popular policies that work against the main priority. Or pursuing less popular choices. And as we've discussed, Rishi Sunak's fighting fires on many fronts, and it's not clear that he's willing or able to do this. Or indeed, as Alex says, potentially be honest about whether he's willing or able to do this. And Delux done a good job, but it's used a lot of its political capital on the Trailblazer deals, and it really needs that prioritization and also the clarity about what it's doing. In the medium term, I'd say a tentative yes. Unusually, there's a lot of political consensus on what the problem is. That's actually a really big success of the whole levelling up agenda. So, whoever's in government, if they can make the agenda a priority and they can meet our tests, then I'll be more optimistic.
0: Thanks very much. Well, that's it for today. Thank you to Alex Thomas, Rebecca McKee, and to John Stevens. Great to have you with us. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, and all major platforms, as well as Rebecca's new report on our website. And while you're there, you can find all the details about our exciting programme of events at the Labour and Conservative Conferences, as well as all the events we'll be hosting at our offices in London. Now, we're always keen to hear from our podcast listeners, and some of you have written in to share your views about the fact that we at the RFG will be hosting Liz Truss, former Prime Minister, next week to give a keynote speech. Regular podcast listeners and other followers of IFG work will also know that when it comes to policy making, we're really keen on the role of independent institutions, parliamentary scrutiny and having a strong evidence base. And last autumn, during the Trust administration, we made public arguments about the importance of those things. And we think it's entirely appropriate to take an opportunity to put our arguments to Liz Trust directly and to give her the opportunity to share her views. So do tune in on Monday, or don't, if you don't want to. Have a great weekend,
1: everyone, and I'll see you next week.